Um, there are some there are some sermons that you might call milk sermons, um, others that you might call meat sermons. Um, milk sermons are f- good and fine, um, and you know, I, I imagine compared to the Bible writers, all of the sermons I'm ever going to preach are probably going to be milk sermons. But obviously, com- comparative in terms of what we do as a church, we do we do do milk sermons, and they're important for particularly for young believers and things. Today's a meat sermon. If you're a young Christian, or if you, um, maybe you're, you're not a Christian, or maybe you're not quite sure where you're at, it may, some of the, it may seem like some of the chunks of beef are a little bit, you know, a bit big, and you may have trouble digesting some of it. I just want to say that at the start, um, just so that you're prepared for where we're going to go today. Um, so you'll have to engage fully, it's not, it's not an issue of being academic, it's not an issue of whether it's intellectual, it's an issue of, I guess, just, I don't know how to put it really, but the Bible in Hebrews refers to milk and meat, and, you know, this is just more on the meaty end of things. So, um, um, yeah, we're going to talk about um, salvation today. Christians talk about being saved, but what do they mean? When a Christian says, oh, I've been saved, so I often say that, I say, I've been saved for 18 years now. What am I actually saying? What am I referring to? When I say that, um, what is salvation? I want to answer that question today firstly. The second question I want to answer today is this, is once you've got salvation, can you lose that salvation? Or do you just have it forever, regardless of what happens? And the third question I want to answer is, um, can you know you're saved? And if so, how? So it's quite a lot to do in one morning. Um, I don't think you'll get bored because of the captivating nature of the subject, the, the, um, the, the content. I'll, I'm tempted to speak very quickly, because I always am, number one, but number two, because we have a lot to get through. I'm aware there's numbers of us here who have English as their second language, and so I'm, I'm going to try to, to keep a good pace as well. So that's where we're going today. Um, are you ready for this? Yeah. Okay, all right. Number one, what is salvation? Let me just pray for God's help. Lord, I, I just want to pray... Heavenly Father, that you would really help us. I pray you would help me to speak your word. I pray you would help everyone here, all probably in some ways in different places. I pray, God, that this would be a helpful message. I pray, Father, that the result of this message in every life would be that you would be glorified more fully, that you would be known more seen, more clearly, Lord, that you've been known more intimately, I pray, in our hearts. Do help us with this holy, holy subject, I pray. I ask it, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what is salvation? Well, the words in the Bible, it means rescue, it means deliverance. So it's pretty um, self-explanatory, it's probably the kind of thing you'd expect it to mean. Salvation means rescue, it means deliverance. Here's the deal though, there are two vital elements to salvation. And I think very often we miss both of these elements and we focus on the one. Here's what I'm saying. When you're saved, you're saved from something, so you are brought out of something, but you're saved for something. It's not just that you're saved from whatever the things are, which we'll look at in a minute, but it's that God saves you from that for something. And salvation covers salvation from and salvation for. 
People often think of it in terms of, well, I've been saved from this, and that's where we go wrong. What are some of the things we've been saved for? Biblically, number one, just living an, inst- an instinctive kind of a life. Really just following our natural senses. I want to do this, so I'll do it. That's how we tend to live, left to our own devices, and people even justify it. Now they say, well, we're only evolved animals anyway, so it's purely, purely justified that we would be so. But the Bible actually makes it clear that what salvation does is it, it, it brings you out of just following your instincts. Just, well, it felt good, so I did it. So we're saved from that. Um, not only this, that we're saved from the, the futility of life that we inherit from our forefathers, perhaps our mums, dads and other ancestors have been into certain things and we just learn it, we pick it up and it's futile, it doesn't glorify God, it doesn't, it's not good, it's, it's bad. It could be superstition, could be um, addiction almost or, 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 or propensity towards alcoholism or, or towards uh, sexual deviance or whatever it might be, but we pick it up, we're, we're brought up in that environment and we carry it with us. Now the Bible says that when you're saved, you're saved from that by the blood of Jesus, you're brought out of that. Satan's domain. The Bible says that you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness. You're brought out from being under the rule of Satan. There's a, there's a, there's a rescue that takes place where Satan's uh, grip over you is loosened by what Jesus has done. And he can no longer hold on to you when you're saved. That we're saved from the power of sin. What does that mean? It's those urges on the inside where we, where we just find ourselves often unable to resist. We do the things that God doesn't want us to do, and very often we don't, but we do them. There's these burning desires very often. The Bible says that we're saved from the ruling power of sin. Not that you're never tempted again, but that you're no longer under the authority of that power and those drives. You've been rescued by Jesus. It's what we see. It's what we see in the Bible. But if that's all salvation is, then you end up defining yourself as a Christian simply by what you used to do. Oh, well, I'm the person who used to be like that and no longer am. I'm the person who used to get drunk all the time. I used to sleep around all the time. I used to spend most of my life looking at uh, internet pornography. That was what I did. Not anymore, I'm saved. The problem with that is it's just vacuous. Really all it is is, well, this is what I did and I don't do it anymore. Yeah, but what do you do? Well, this is who I am, and this is who I was, but I'm not that anymore. Fine, but who are you? Who are you? It's fine, it's great that you're no longer that, but who are you? What have you been saved for? You can have a heart you're filled with, or as you look on the most awesome, the, 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 only, the only one in the whole of the universe that's not a creature, not created, the creator, the one from whom all things come, the one who stands astride of time and space, the only one who fills all things, that you look and you gaze on him in a relationship, and through that gazing and looking you are transformed, you are you're in his likeness and then you reflect that out. And so the idea originally with mankind is that the, the rest of creation would see God through us. An amazing and extraordinary privilege. That through our relationship with him, we would then image out his likeness in creation. And it'd be like, wow, this is fantastic. This is, the, this is God's plan. Now, when God saves you out of all those things, it's to bring you back. It's to restore you to that place. It's to restore you to relationship. It's to restore you where you know him again. Where you can gaze on him. Where you can see him by the Holy Spirit's revelation, where with the eyes of your heart you can see him again. Sure, not perfectly, that won't come until he returns, but you can definitely, you're restored. Suddenly, praying makes sense. It's not just groping about in the dark or calling out when you're in trouble. Suddenly, it's the thing you instinctively do. You've been restored. You've been reconciled. You know him now. You see him now. When you read the Bible, it makes sense. Not always, but it makes sense. 
the things about God. You think, wow, it quickens your heart, it thrills you. What is this? You've been born again. You've been restored. You've been, you've been saved for a relationship. You've been saved for restoration. And then what? And then you've been saved to reflect out the nature and the character of God in the earth. You've been, you've, you've been saved, what for? To be the light of the world, Jesus said. We live in a dark world. So much stuff goes on behind closed doors. I was thinking to myself the other day, you know, the whole baby pee thing. This poor young toddler who was terribly abused and ended up dying. And you think, actually, I wonder what would have happened if I just, I don't know, if I'd been a salesman and gone round to that house and knocked on the door and said, hi, I've come to, do you, do you want to change your gas? You know, do you want to change who you, who you, who you have your gas with? I'm sure the mum or the boyfriend would say, um, no, thank you very much, you know, okay, bye-bye. But pleasant, close the door, and you would know nothing of it. But behind the door, what was going on? Horror. Unthinkable things. We live in a dark world. Respectable facade, dark underneath. All kinds of things go on. We think all kinds of things in the darkness, so we, so we think of our own minds. But God sees. But we've been called to be the light of the world. You're saved to be the light. Of the, you're saved to be the salt of the earth. What, what does that mean? Well, salt in those days, there was no fridges. Salt was, salt was preservative. You've, called, you've been called by God to be a preservative in a rotting world. That's what you're saved for. This is what you're saved for, to, to, in the workplace, to, to shine with the, 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 the likeness of Christ, to, to, to be righteous and upright, not to be corrupt, not to get in on that, not to just take stuff from the office everyone else does. No, I'm the light of the world now. You've been saved for glory. You've been saved to represent God in all that you do and everywhere that you go. It's a wonderful thing. You've been called, you've been saved for what? You've been saved for fruitfulness, productivity for God. You've been saved to co-labour, to work with Jesus in seeing the works that the devil destroyed in other people's lives. In seeing other people restored. Other people get right with God. It's what you've been saved for. This is salvation. This is salvation. You're saved from, but you're saved for. In light of that, now we understand that you've got a glimpse, okay, so it's not just, okay, salvation just being brought out, it's what God's bringing you into. I want to ask the question, can you lose it? Once you've been saved, can you lose that salvation? Before I go into this, I want to say something. This is not an easy subject. Not just emotionally, it's not an easy subject theologically. Godly scholars have quarrelled over this for centuries. Because of that, here's what I want to say. Some of you today will object with my view. You'll object with what I teach. All I want to ask is this, that you don't react defensively and emotionally, but you go back to the scriptures and you search out for yourself. If you come back with a different view from me, I will not think of you as ignorant. I will not be dismissive towards you. I will humbly say, okay, as long as you've come to that conviction through the scripture, I respect that. It's not an easy subject. And I've kind of, I've batted it around, honestly, for years. I've had discussions, I've read, I've thought. So... Um, but I just want to, I want to come with conviction, but I want to be humble with it. So that's where we're going today. Okay. Now, in order to answer this question, you need to have in mind the twin dynamic of salvation. That salvation is being saved from darkness, death, sin, judgment, hell, Satan's rule, and it's being saved for relationship with God, fruitfulness, influencing for righteousness, intimate walk with Jesus, glory, okay? It's from and for. In order to answer this question, you need to have both of these things clearly in your mind. Now, we're going to go to the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. You might think, um, why are we going to do that? 
Well, here's why we're going to do that. When the Apostle Paul was speaking about the Israelites in the wilderness, here's what he said. Second slide, please, John. I've missed the first one. Sorry. It says this. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So the Apostle Paul here is writing about the Israelites in the wilderness. And then he said, these things took place as examples for... Right. So we're going to use them as an example for ourselves today. And it's very, very helpful and vivid, I think you will see. I'm going to tell you the story. Are you sitting comfortably? Okay. Some of you will know the story of Moses, the wilderness, the Israelites. I'm going to give you it in very brief. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you would have seen it in um, the Prince of Egypt, which has some artistic license, but in the main, captures the heart of the story. Here's a situation. The Israelites, or the Hebrews, the Jews, who in this, in this time were God's chosen people, they moved into Egypt as really just an extended family. They weren't a nation at this point, extended family. 400 years later, they had become a nation. They moved into Egypt as a privileged people. They were linked with Joseph, and as such, they were privileged. So they moved in, they were given good land, they were privileged. 400 years later, they were slaves. A lot can happen in 400 years. They'd become slaves, they were under forced labour. Pharaoh was afraid of them, the ruler of Egypt, he didn't want to let them go. God hears the groaning of the Israelites, raises up Moses and says to Moses, you go and you rescue my people from Egypt. So Moses goes, he confronts Pharaoh, Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go. After much conflict of judgments and plagues from the Lord being sent on the Egyptians, there's a final one where Moses says to Pharaoh, if you do not let these people go, the firstborn of every one of your household will be destroyed in the morning. Pharaoh says, no way. The next morning, the Egyptians wake up to find the firstborn of every home, animal and human, destroyed. Pharaoh says, go. So the Israelites make their way with plunder, gold and silver towards the Red Sea. They get to the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind, sends his army after them. So suddenly the people of Israel are caught between the mountains, the army and the sea. And God at this point miraculously opens the Red Sea. The Israelites walk through to the other side safely. The Egyptians follow, mistake, the sea closes and they all die. And then the aim is, is that they're to walk through the wilderness for six weeks and get to the promised land, the land called Canaan in those days, the land of promise. Very, very important elements in this story for understanding our salvation. It's a symbol. It's a picture. It's a picture. It's used time and time again in the New Testament. It's a picture of our salvation. Well, okay, if it's a symbol, what represents what? Number one, Egypt represents the world. It represents the world system, okay, which sometimes blatantly, sometimes subtly, but always desires to keep us away from the knowledge of Christ. Always. The world system does not want us to, it's organised really, the Bible says the whole world is under the sway of the evil one, and so really Satan influences the world, so that really the, the whole tenor of thinking is against the gospel. It might be for religion in certain nations, but it's against the gospel. He doesn't want people to be truly born again and to tell other people about Jesus. Pharaoh represents Satan, the ruler of this world. Satan, we're told, will use anything to keep us away from Jesus. Success, money, addiction to whatever, pleasure, anything to keep us away from finding freedom in Jesus Christ. We've got deliverance through the Red Sea. What does this represent? It represents the miracle of salvation. That it's not, you can't, being brought up a Christian is not enough. Being Christian isn't enough. To be saved, a miracle of God needs to happen. Something has to happen in your heart 
Jesus referred to it being born, as being born again. It's this way God awakens you, you become a brand new creation. Okay? It's miraculous. You come through, so you, it's like you pass through and you're in a place, how did I get here? It's a miracle. Um, and the land of promise, the promised land, Canaan, represents what we are saved for. God says, I've brought you out, but I want to bring you in. I've brought you out to bring you in. Now, what happened to the Israelites on their journey? What happened to them? They were all rescued by grace, by faith, they walked through the sea, and then every single one of them, a company of about two million, every single one of them except for two individuals, Joshua and Caleb, were laid low in the wilderness and did not come into the promised land. They grieved God. How? Through their unbelief. They constantly moaned, whined, complained, rebelled. They got into idolatry. They got into sexual immorality. They got into rebellion against Moses and the leaders. You name it, they did it. Why? Because in their hearts, they didn't trust the Lord. Question, did these people lose their salvation? No. And yes. No. In what sense? No. God didn't say, blow this lot, get him back to Egypt. We'll get to the Red Sea, we'll sort some rafts out, send them over. <laughs> I've had enough of this lot. Yeah? Back to Pharaoh. No, never. Never even a hint of it. No, no, no. You don't go back. No. So, no. But yes. Why? Well, what were they saved for? For the land of promise. Did they get there? No. No, they didn't get there. They suffered immense loss. Immense loss. They've been held up as bad examples ever since. So if salvation is just rescue, then no, they didn't lose it. But if it's more than that, if it's about coming into the purposes of God, if it's about inheriting the promises of God, then yes, they lost it. Now some of you at this point might say, yeah, but this is the Old Testament, you know, this, you know, this is before Jesus... It doesn't, it doesn't work the same way after Jesus. Okay, let's go to the New Testament. For some of you, you might find this, this might shake some of you, so I just want to prepare you. I'm not doing this just to be provocative. I want to bring your scriptures to you. Okay. We've got a situation in the church in Corinth in the New Testament where one of the guys in the church is, in, is sleeping with his dad's wife, sleeping with his stepmom, and he's refusing to repent. He's refusing to put it right. And he's insistent, no, I'm a believer and I want to be part of the church. And um, how does the Apostle Paul, who oversees this church, how does he respond? Okay, let's have a look in 1 Corinthians 5 to what, what we see here. Okay? When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, so have a gathering as a church, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, that's going to take some explaining, so I'm going to do that. What's Paul saying here? What on earth? Hold on, this guy is love, he's all about Jesus. He's talking about delivering this man to Satan. What? Is this in the Bible? Yeah, you can check it. There's the reference, okay? What's he say? Here's what he's saying. He's saying this. This man is a time bomb. This guy is a walking time bomb. He's messed up his own dad's marriage. He's refusing to repent. He's going to do this again and again. He's refusing to get right and humble himself. He's insisting it's okay to do as a Christian. This man is on self-destruct. 
for the sake of the church, you need to remove him from the church. That's what it means. To live in Satan, it means put him out of the church as discipline. That will remove his spiritual protection from him. He's then vulnerable for satanic attack and will most likely come to a swift end. Will most likely die prematurely. Which is what needs to happen, really, because he's, he's on self-destruct and the more he's living this kind of life, the more he's storing up judgment for himself. It would be better now if he just went to be with the Lord. His spirit will still be saved. He's a man in gross, persistent, unrepentant sin. His spirit will still be saved. But is he coming to God's plan for his life? No. Not at all. Let's try another one. This is the situation of two people that are both serving the Lord. If anyone builds on the foundation, the foundation which is Christ, he said earlier, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day we'll disclose it as the day of judgment. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as true fire. What's Paul saying? He's saying that you can, work, you can work in different ways for the Lord. You can give yourself to the work of the Lord, whether that's in the workplace, shining for Jesus, at home as a, as a housewife, just bringing up your kids in the, in the fear of God and teaching them about Jesus, whether, whether it's you know, you're witnessing to your colleagues, whether it's at university, doing your work as worship and, and shining. You can live in such a way, you can work for the Lord, you can serve him in such a way where you're pouring yourself out, where you're, just, you're, you're giving him your best. And on the day of judgment, when the fire comes, it will just only highlight, wow, the pressure, look what you've, yeah, you've built, it's, it lasts, it's a reward, look at this, wow. This other person has built with wood, hay and straw, it just, well, whatever. I'd rather be doing my own thing. I'll give myself to my own hobbies and passions and the rest, but the Jesus, that, well, yeah, no, whatever, I'll give, him, I'll give him what I can spare. What happens? Well, the work gets burnt up. Now they're saved, but as through fire. There is an experience of fire that they go through on the day of the Lord. Because of their negligence. It's been lazy. Here's another example. 1 Timothy. Keep faith and a good conscience. Paul's speaking to Timothy. By rejecting this, faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. It's not hypothetical, he names them. Imagine it's having your name recorded in scripture forever. It's just horrible, isn't it? Among whom are Harmanius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, there it is again, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's very vivid imagery, this shipwreck imagery. Here they are, it's, it's salvation's a journey. You're going somewhere, you're being saved for a glorious purpose, but you've shipwrecked it. Why? Well, because the, you've, you've stopped listening to your conscience. And you've just, you, you've, you're holding things loosely that are things that are eternal and things that are to be held in the depths of your heart. Glorious things of eternity that God's revealed to you that you should hold and hold dear and treasure and guard. You've just been, oh, well, whatever. No, you've, they've shipwrecked their faith. They never got to where they were going. Now, understand the flavour is redemptive, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's not all lost, but they've they've shipwrecked. They're not get What a waste. What a waste. It's redemptive in nature. Pleasant cast them aside, but they're they're shipwrecked. Look at this one, very famous one. This one, hold on to your seats. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, so he's there looking at the old covenant, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who spurned the Son of God, has has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This language is talking about a believer. Now, many, many theologians would say it's not. I think their arguments are very weak. Talks there about, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, everywhere else that phrase is used in the New Testament is clearly talking about those who are saved. Look at the final sentence, the Lord will judge his people. It's talking about believers. A believer who insists, in the light of knowing the gospel, but insists on willfully, persistently, just carrying on in a lifestyle that he knows is grieving God. God says, the Lord will judge his people. The Lord doesn't disown them. He doesn't say, you're not mine anymore. But there is a very serious judgment they're going to experience. Now at this point, some of you are probably thinking, flip. Where I'm, you know, I thought this thing was secure. Let me say this. God has provided all we need in Christ, so this should happen to none of us. And I want to explain this now, just to bring this through so you understand how this works. In, back to the wilderness. In the wilderness, there were challenges for the Israelites. Genuine challenges. Sometimes, it was a challenge of the environment. There's no water. That's challenging. There's no food that can, that can highlight. You ever tried fasting? It can highlight where your heart's at. Yeah? There's no food. We're going to starve. There was an enemy attack, not Pharaoh, other nations waiting to pick them off. Amalekites looking in, we can attack them now. There was, there was challenges. There were these trials that came. How, and, and what these trials did, they exposed the hearts of the Israelites. These trials in and of themselves were not a big deal. Every time God demonstrated, he was able to do it. Oh, you know, there's no food. Oh, who can make... And then someone said, the Lord will provide. And they started saying, oh, what? Is it, you know, even if heaven was to open its windows, there'd never be enough food for us. The next morning, there was quail 18 inches high. Everywhere. And God says, what? It's a light thing. It's an easy thing. Every enemy that rose up against the Israelites, God found it easy to just deal with them. Easy. And actually, the Lord used these trials to do what? To expose what was in their heart, which was what? They were fundamentally much more impressed with the difficulties than they were with the Lord. Fundamentally, they were more impressed with the sense of, ah, it's all going to go wrong, than they were with the presence of the Lord, the glory of God. Now, as a believer, we have difficulties, don't we? We have trials, we have attacks, sometimes fierce attacks. Yet none of these things have the ability to remove us in any way from God's hand. Let's look at these, some of these beautiful verses. 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is... He will not let you be tempted beyond your... But, within the temp- but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure under it. I love this. He won't tempt you beyond your ability. Hallelujah. Everyone's going, phew. He won't. He won't bring something along that you can't cope with. He wouldn't do it. He knows where you're at. Sometimes, I don't know about you, you know, if you're on a Bible week or something really spiritual, you start thinking, I'm pretty uh, spiritually, uh, yeah, I could well be uh, getting mature here. But <laughs> the, Lord, the Lord looks on and he knows. Yeah, yeah, you're at a Bible week. Yeah, let's just be, you know, he knows. And so he knows better than you. 
He will not bring something that is too much. He won't. If you're saying, I can't do this, no. It's not, not necessarily it's going to be easy. What does he do? He provides, this is an interesting phrase, he provides the way of escape that you may be able to stay in there. You see that? He provides a way of escape so you can run away, no. So you can endure it. What is that? How does that work? He provides something that means you can escape from actually giving into the temptation, but you can walk through the temptation victoriously. He'll provide brothers and sisters in Christ, the church. He'll provide angelic help, often unknown, but he'll provide it. He'll provide you this Holy Spirit. He will provide you. He will not test you beyond what you can bear. Or look at John 10, this is beautiful. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Hallelujah! No one can snatch you. No one can get you. They're going to get me. No, they're not. No one can get you out of his hand. If you're in his hand, you're in his hand. Or look at this, Romans 8. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, that's demonic rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can. No trial, no difficulty, nothing that's going to come in the future, nothing from the past, nothing. Say nothing. 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 Hallelujah. This is great. In fact, these trials and temptations that come have the ability to produce Christ-likeness in us. Look at what Peter says. In this, your inheritance, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. They're hard, they grieve us. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! The trials bring out, oh wow, it's, you really are a follower of Jesus. Look at the way you're responding. Look at this, whoa, this is beautiful. It brings out praise and glory and honour to Jesus Christ. But you know you can believe lies. As a Christian, you can believe satanic lies. Oh, this is too much for you. God's given up on you. God doesn't love you anymore. You can believe that, can't you? Yeah? And you can get, get into discouragement and you can start to back away. You can start to panic and then act out of fear and start doing crazy things. You think, why am I doing this? It's because I'm scared. I've, God hasn't come when I thought he would come. God hasn't broken in. I answered my prayer. So I, I'll just make it, I'll, I'll work it out. And you panic and you... Fear and you begin to do these things. Or you can give in to the seductions of the flesh and the burning desires. Oh, it's too much. I'm a... You can do those things. Even the Apostle Paul was concerned about himself on this front. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, don't you know that in a race all the runners compete, only one receives the prize. Run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. In those days, in the Olympic Games and stuff, you'd get a wreath on your head. Um, we, an imperishable one, one that will never, no, never fade away. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beat in the air, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. After preaching the gospel, I find actually I've lost my, I've lost my prize, my reward. I, God's got a reward for you. That, that is an eternal reward. It's symbolised through crowns in the Old Testament. It's a sense of well done, a sense of you've followed after me, you trusted me. It's these crowns. Paul says, look, actually I could get disqualified from that. I could lose that. I could lose that. Still be in heaven, but with that, but look, a sense of loss. How do you hold that? I don't know. But it's there. It's in the Bible. 
You know, if you're a believer, there's a massive responsibility on you for what you've seen and heard. You can't treat it lightly. Look at what Peter says. This is probably perhaps the most troubling verse of the morning. Look what Peter says. If after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, their last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness and after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. There's a responsibility. When you, when you get the gospel, there's a responsibility. You can't pretend you don't know it anymore. Jesus wants you to go from strength to strength. Jesus wants you to go from ever-increasing glory. It is not the plan of God that you just, you just, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but you just get back into what you were into before and you find yourself entangled. No! No! And it's not okay to say, well, I'm saved anyway. No, you've not understood salvation. Salvation is God wants you to go to glory and glory and glory and keep running with him and become more like Jesus. And he's got so much for you. He's got so much for you. It's not okay, well, I've got my ticket to heaven. No! You mustn't think like that. You mustn't think like that. He says it's worse. It's worse than what you were like before. Because you've seen the gospel and now you're just, you've got back into stuff. Before you were blind, before you were ignorant, before you never knew it's what you did by nature. You've been regenerated, you've been born again. How can you go back to that? How tragic. How tragic, it's heartbreaking. How can you go back to that? So what do we do? We make every effort. Look at Peter again, next one. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Effort, virtue with knowledge. Knowledge, self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. You're building, you're building, you're adding. So I'm going to put this, I'm going to take, you're putting your armour on. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness, brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are, they keep you from being, and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he's blind. He's forgotten, he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. As you practice those things, you will never fall. You'll be too busy adding to yourself to be falling. So many believers, they fall because they're just sitting around. They're just sitting around. So many believers I meet, they say, oh, I'm really struggling. I say, what have you done the last two days? Uh, I watched Neighbours. Oh, that's why. You've just been sitting around. You've just been in. Most, most of our problems due to too much time on our hands. See, that's too much time. You just get into nonsense, vacuous nonsense. You just, oh, I'm sitting around, I've been there two hours, it's getting boring now. Ah, there's the internet. There always seems to be loads of girls in there that look at me as if they really want to make love to me. It's amazing that. They look at everyone like that. Make you feel special though, can't it? So I'll just, what were you doing just sitting around? Should have been adding, adding, building, adding, more armour. Let's go, we're going somewhere. We're going somewhere. In this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. It'll be a rich, a rich entrance. A well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we're after? Listen to the Apostle Paul. Listen to how Paul lives. Philippians 3. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So can you lose your salvation? No and yes. No and yes. Finally, how do you know if you're saved? Can you know if you're saved? And we're going to end with this. Well, first you've got to work out how you get saved. You get saved by grace. So many go wrong here. So many go wrong here. 
They thought, well, I've given a bit of money, raised some money for Red Nose Day. You know, I'm sure if God and heaven and that is real, that'll count for something. It's the scales idea. <coughs> given enough time, my good will outweigh my bad. No, the problem's not primarily what you do. The problem's who you are. <sighs> Sorry. The problem's who you are. The problem's not primarily what I've you know, done these. No, it's who you are. You're a sinner. Now, over the years, you may get calmer. It just makes you a calmer sinner. You may get nicer. It just makes you a nicer sinner. You're a sinner. What's a sinner? It's someone who's fundamentally opposed to God. Fundamentally opposed to God's rights, God's standards, God's authority, God's rule. You even get religious sinners. But ultimately, we were born in our heart. We're opposed to God. And we're much more concerned with our rights, our authority, our standards. It's a terrible position that we're in. And only the grace of God, only the unmerited favour from God can break into that fortified castle and bring new life. Only God's grace can do that. And you see God's grace in the cross. You see God's grace primarily in the death and resurrection, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where you see it. You see the desperation of where we're at and the sufficiency of God's provision. That is life for life. Hallelujah. Substitution. He's given one to live the kind of life we could never live. And then who would give his righteousness to us? Who dies the death that we deserve to die of, though he didn't. So that our condemnation and judgment can go on to him. And then be raised from the dead and take us with him into eternal life. It's the grace of God. This is how you get saved. But how can you know then that you are saved? Well, yes, you can. Let's look at the next section. 1 John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Yeah? John's intention is, I want to write this to you because I want to give you assurance. I want you to know. I don't want to leave here wondering, oh, do I know the Lord or don't I? I want you to leave here knowing, I know God. I've got eternal life. That is the plan of God for you. So how did, what's, the, what's the New Testament test then for how do you know if you're saved? It's basically this, Matthew 7. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Nah. Figs from thistles? Nah. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, the diseased tree bears bad fruit. The healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognise them by their... You can have someone opposite from you in a calf saying, I'm an apple tree. All they've got hanging off them is lemons. It's not convincing. You can just think to yourself, keep talking bro. You're not convincing. But I prayed a prayer when I was 10. Keep talking, bro. Or you got hanging off these lemons. You know a tree bites fruit. That's the biblical way. Judas. We'll look at Judas later. <laughs> it's an interesting one. It's an interesting You know, what, what, what's fruit? Can you get false fruit? We'll look at that in just a minute. I want to ask yourself some questions today. Ask yourself some questions about your salvation. Here we go. Ask yourself this. Is your confidence entirely in Jesus or are you resting on anything else? When you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Will there be anything on your lips other than Jesus? If so, false confidence. Complete false foundation. If you start talking about how much money you raised for Red Nose Day or how many times you went to church, no. No, you've missed it. You've missed what it is to be a Christian. You've missed what it is to be saved. The only thing that must be on your lips is Jesus, my substitute. Ask yourself this, is there any desire in your heart for Jesus? Is there any desire in your heart? Do you, do you long for him? Do you long for Jesus? 
You might think, well, it used to be like that flame, but now it's just a smouldering wick. What does the Bible say? A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. He won't snuff it out. He'll get round it and he'll nurture it. But naturally, there's no desire in our hearts for Jesus. So if there is, it's probably a sign the Holy Spirit indwells you. But ask yourself, is there desire in the heart? Another question, take a step back. Look at your life over the last months and years. Is there any growth? Now there are seasons where we, yeah, and other seasons where it's quieter. I know all of that, but is there a sense of being changed into, into the likeness of Christ? Is, is there any of that going on? These are questions to ask yourself to help you to understand. It's important because you can get false brothers. You can get people who profess to be believers but aren't. Listen to this, Matthew 7. Sorry, next one, John. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't prophesy. He doesn't say you didn't cast out demons. He doesn't say that. Obviously, they did do this. But Jesus said, I didn't know you. I didn't know you. You looked the part. You looked well impressive. You were that. Pentecostal minister, you were looking good. You had your bottle of oil and everything. <laughs> See, what was your confidence in? Jesus, I didn't know you. I didn't know you. You didn't let me know you. There was no, there was no relationship. Hmm. Judas, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't all go, oh yeah, we know who that is. No, they didn't. He seemed just like them. He seemed just like them. They didn't all go, oh yeah, Judas, yeah, next. No. They were like, is it me, Lord? Because he looked like them. He'd been out on the mission trips. He'd been casting out. He'd been doing all the stuff. He'd been, he, they even put him in charge of the money. They obviously trusted him. He seemed like a good guy. He's one of us. He's been through, yeah, he's been through the hardships of us. He's been, yeah, he's, he's been around. He's with us. What does Jesus call him? The son of perdition. No, wasn't saved. Judas wasn't saved. Judas was a false brother. So in terms of, well, how can I know if I'm being saved? What's, my, what's your advice? Here's my advice. Purify your heart. Don't be confident in miracles and other things. Rest your entire weight upon Jesus and cultivate a genuine relationship with him and fan into flame all he's put in you by his spirit. Let me conclude with the whole morning. Once you've been delivered from being unregenerate, not born again, just you know who you were born in Adam, in your natural state, I, I believe you can no longer return to that. Once you're born again, you're born again but you can most certainly forfeit your inheritance in this life and in the life to come. Yeah. Things God's planned for you. You can forfeit it through persistent sin. You can forfeit it through hardening your heart. You can forfeit it through being negligent. Once you're in the kingdom of light, you're in the kingdom of light. But if you revert back to darkness and deny Christ, there's something awaiting you on judgment day that in some ways is worse than, in some ways, what the unbeliever experiences. How so? Here's how. What's worse for me? My son becoming a murderer or a stranger becoming a murderer? What's worse? Right. Right. That's much worse. If my son got to be a murderer, that is much worse than someone I don't know becoming a murderer. Bad though that is. Much worse. It's a more serious thing for the Lord if one of his children deliberately, persistently, ongoing, willfully continue a lifestyle of sin than if one does who doesn't know him. And as such, the discipline that one will receive in some ways will be harder than the one who didn't know better. And yet they remain a son and will be in heaven forever unlike the lost person. How does that work? No idea. 
No idea. But I know what it should produce. Diligence, watchfulness, reverence, zeal in the, kind, in the hearts of believers that you find in Paul, Peter, John, and all the other guys. So there we go. Salvation is not just being saved from hell, it's being saved for. God's got so much for you. So much for you. So much for you. I don't believe God will ever return you to a state of lostness or hell. But absolutely, you can forfeit and just suffer so much loss when God's got so much for you. And the best way to know you're saved is to just cultivate a relationship with Jesus and let him, let him, let him never be able to say, I never knew you. <gasps> yeah? You think, Jesus, you must never be able to say that. Because I've been totally like, I, one of my favourite things to do is I just totally like unfold myself in Jesus' presence. You know what I'm saying? You just say, here it is. It's not very impressive. It really isn't. It's not amazing. This is it. You, is there anything you want to talk about? <gasps> yeah? There's some very troubled faces out here, unsurprisingly. I wasn't going to do Q&A, but I'm going to. Because I, I love you and I want to care for you pastorally. Some of you may never heard anything like this before. Rebecca. Yeah. So a sense of, you're pursuing God and you always feel like, man, there's so much more that I could have, you know, and it, it, find, it kind of feels hard to get to that place. And you just, it's, a, it's a very real struggle that I experience also. I really can relate to that. Absolutely. You're like, God, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's part of that. It's the upward call of God in Christ. Even that desire is just evidence of just God's work in your life. It's what Paul says, I'm straining towards what's ahead, you know. I want more. You know, he's not settling. He's like, oh, I'm after. And I think, that's, I think that's Christian experience. I do. I think it's Christian experience. And uh, it's the now and the not yet. It's like, um, it's Paul says, we groan. We groan in this body. Yeah? Because we can't contain the glory that our new body will be able to contain. So it's someone just like, oh, man, that's Christian experience. I don't, think that's a, I don't think that's a bad thing, though it's hard. So I wouldn't be discouraged by that. But absolutely, emotionally, it can be hard. You just want more of God. Yeah, but I don't think that's a sign that something's wrong or something's bad. Anything else? Rachel? Um, what's the difference between sort of actively going for God and striving, as it were, for sort of motivating? Yes, 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 very good. What's the difference between striving in a fleshly way and just going for God in a godly way? The word striving is used positively and negatively, I think, in the Bible. Sometimes we use it only negatively to talk about, we, talk, we use it negatively to refer to people who they're not confident that Jesus is enough for them, they're not confident that God loves them. So out of that insecurity, they constantly try and do things to try and assure themselves. That's a negative way of striving. What's the difference between that and the other sense of godly striving? I think that, to be honest with you, coming to maturity is a process of coming out of that into that. I think sometimes we say it's either that striving or it's that striving. I think sometimes there's a mixture and coming to maturity is that more and more you just become more and more secure in God and you just grow in grace and it just moves in. I think as long as it's moving in the right direction, that's the main thing. Zealous people struggle with negative striving. That's a common struggle for a lot of zealous people. It's like, you know, oh, what do you want more of God? And they say, oh, no, I've fallen to strive. And you get this big dilemma, you know. I think sometimes you can get so introspective. I think God knows your heart. And I would just say, just keep meditating on the gospel and the grace of God. That's my advice. <coughs> Anything else? Louis? Um, what's the difference between denying Jesus' behaviour but 
sure. And then there are some people who I know who have become Christians and then become Muslims afterwards and then deny Jesus as God. Mm. When somebody says, oh, well, were they saved in the first place? Mm. But you're not supposed to tell that to the truth. But mm. I think I did see fruit in their life, so I don't know what mm. Here's the deal. When it comes to assurance of salvation, be concerned with yourself and not others. I don't know, you know, so I've got people in my very close family who would have made a profession of faith, got baptised, they're nowhere. Nowhere, no sense of living faith or anything. What do I, I don't know. I pray for them to get saved. Because <laughs> if they are saved, that's not, not going to do any harm. If they're not, you know, uh, uh, so I'm just sort of going on the safe side. I think we mustn't make, we mustn't make a dis, this person say this one isn't. No, I don't. That's for God. Do you know what I mean? That's for God. But what I do is I take it to myself and I say, Lord, I want to make sure that I'm in a good place with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm saying you can, and you can't. Well, I was meditating on this verse, not a great verse to meditate on, but you know, I just was one of the big ones to battle it through is if we deny him, he'll deny us. So I'm just trying to think that one through a bit. So, uh, to be honest with you, the, the jury's out of my mind on that one at the moment. I think you can say clearly that that's true for people who don't know the Lord. I think you would have to ask the question can someone who genuinely knows the Lord ever do that? I don't know. Maybe they can. I, sorry, I can't help you any more on that. But good question. Anything else, Peter? In the, okay. In the Bible, when it says when they ask him again sin they can't be forgiven for, yeah, it says if they sin against the Holy Spirit. Yeah. yeah. And he even says that some of the Pharisees were doing it when they were saying that he was casting out demons and then another demon. Yes. So has anyone done that even before they become Christians? Does that mean they can never become a Christian? Um. The blessing of the Holy Spirit is probably a sermon in itself. So I'm not going to deliberately just avoid that. I just feel like I don't want to go there today, if that's okay. It's, it's a good question, but I just feel it probably needs a bit more. Some questions I won't answer because I feel I wouldn't, I wouldn't serve you well by answering it because I'd be giving you a little throwaway thought and it needs a lot more treatment. So it's okay, sorry. Yes? Going back to your uh, allegory of uh, some random person becoming a murderer and your son becoming a murderer, yeah. it's much worse that your son becomes Sin, uh, stick it to heaven. Mm. Is that, how's that much worse than, than if they... Uh, so it's in a worse state, doesn't it? Um, <coughs> is it so? It would be better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than I've known to turn back to the heaven. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's shocking. It's shocking. I'm trying to do my best to make sense of it and help you with it. I'm not pretending to un- understand it fully. It's best I can do. I just think it's tempting to just overlook those lines and think, oh, move on, because that's just what, you know, what? Yeah? Think, no, let's try and at least make some sense of it. That's the best sense I can make of it. How that works. Okay, yeah. Okay, so what it, here's the deal. Some people that are in persistent sin, the believers are in persistent gross sin and they refuse to repent, um, it's much better for them to be taken now. 
Here's a story. John Piper, famous author, preacher. Man in his church went to Bangkok as a missionary, and the last thing they'd heard, he'd slept with 14 prostitutes and was um, totally, obviously, you know, backslidden. What did they do as a church? They took this first to start praying for the guy's death. Interesting. Now, their logic was this. Their logic was he's causing more harm to the glory of God and to himself through what he's doing. It would be much more merciful all around if this guy was just taken out so that he could just be... Le- he's, just a, he's just so dis- destructive. I've seen that happen. I've seen people taken out of the game, um, clearly, that are believers and are in willful, re- unrepentant and gross sin. You see it in, Sorry. Yeah. So I don't understand. If they die physically, yeah. how, can they, how can they be saved after they're saved? They're saved. They're, they always were saved. They're still saved. They're still born again. They're still one of God's people. So the spirit goes to heaven for eternity. But they've been judged. Ananias and Sapphira, similar thing. In that, who lied to the Holy Spirit, God just takes them out. I believe they're in heaven, but just taking out the games. Judgment. Judgment, judgment. So the Bible says judgment begins with the household of God and can hit this life and the next life. Even for the saved. But if, you're, if you've died at a point where you're unrepentant to God, mm. I don't understand how you're saved. Well, what? Okay, let's imagine you're a really, really good believer and you're doing really well and then you slip up once and then you die. So you sleep with someone and then you just get one over on the way home. You don't lose your, you don't lose your salvation. But God will have words. You see in 1 Corinthians 11, they're doing bread and wine all wrong, they're getting drunk, the rich ones are turning up early and getting drunk, the slaves turn up late because they're poor, they have to work longer hours, all the food's gone, all the drink's gone, everyone's drunk and lying around. And Paul says, this, well, some of you are weak and ill, some of you have fallen asleep, some of you have died. God's judgment on you. But he uses the term fallen asleep, which is a term for a believer dying, not perishing. So you've got to hold these... It's not easy... But I believe it's biblical doctrine. And I believe what it should produce is a sense of security in that I am one of God's children forever and yet the fear of the Lord. I don't just mess around and think, well, it's all right, I've got my ticket to heaven. You see some believers doing that, you think, man, alive, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Or just consumed with worldly pursuits. Just worldly pursuits. I want to get all I can for this life, and, but it's okay, I prayed the prayer. You think, what are you? This is nothing like biblical Christianity. You see, no, you, the Bible speaks into that and says, no, it's crazy. You're really, you're going to suffer loss. You're going to forfeit what God had for you. He wanted so much more for you. Okay, I think it's as far as we're going to be able to get today, helpfully. So what time is it? Yeah, quarter past. I know, it's been, I know it's been long. It would have been probably out of order for me to do a short sermon on that. Okay, so that's my kind of justification for that. We're going to, just, we're going to do the bread and wine. We're going to worship Jesus. If you need to get right with him, yeah, please get right with him. And it may mean speaking to a brother or sister, but before you do that, just repent, please. Get right with God, hey? Let's let the fear of the Lord be in us. Hallelujah, we're children forever, but we want all the glory God's got for us, don't we? Yeah, Lord, we just thank you for this amazing salvation that cost you everything. I want to pray for each of us here, probably all of us doing mental gymnastics to some degree or another, I pray help us to just draw near to you now, to receive grace. I thank you. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord, that we all need blood on us every hour, the blood of Jesus, because we constantly stink and say and do things and don't say things that we should say and constantly, Lord, because we are so flawed. And yet, God, we thank you for this grace, this amazing gospel which covers us. We thank you for that, Lord. And we just say we want to love you more and we want to, we want to know you better in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand?